All right, we brought the story of Ruth to its fruition in the first three studies and come down to the point where the marriage proposal was made and I basically told you how the story ends. What we're going to do today and tomorrow is study principles that are related to your conduct during a courtship period. And I want to reiterate, <clears throat> I'm not trying to get into the discussion of dating versus courting and how supervised it should or shouldn't be because at the end of the day, you're going to need to submit to your parents in that process. And if your parents, you know, have a set of instructions and guidelines that seem very strange to you, that's okay. You still have to submit to those rules. And you may not understand them, but they're going to have their reasons. And there may, their reasons may be nothing more or less than their own cheap entertainment. It just really doesn't matter. You've still got to follow their rules. And uh, so you, you work that out with your parents. We're just going to talk about the principles related to your conduct and how you approach this. One of the things that we're, we're really going to focus on in this, in this afternoon study is approaching a, let's label it a courtship or a dating relationship, approaching that like a friendship, okay? Boyfriend is a friend that's a boy. Girlfriend is a friend that's a girl. We don't always think of it that way because we surround so much around the relationship that involves the idea of what we label as love or infatuation or these romantic affections that we really don't think of that boyfriend as your friend or that girlfriend as your friend. But I want to encourage you today to approach it that way because that's how it is with the best of marriages. When you watch the best marriages that have lasted and lasted and lasted, you're watching two people that somewhere along the way they became friends. And a lot of times they became friends before they were ever romantically interested in one another. Um, in, in the case with, with my wife, Tanya, that's, that's what happened with us. We became friends before we ever started dating. And I, I'm not advocating that just because that happened to work out well. I will tell you, not only in my own experiences, but in Tanya's experiences and in us watching our girls and watching other young people, especially young people in the church, when the relationship emphasized a friendship centered on Jesus, if it ever ended, and sometimes that happens, that ending tended to not be so messy. <laughs> and if it did not emphasize friendship centered on Jesus, if it was all wrapped up in the heat of the affection of the moment, a lot of times the ending was very messy with a lot of tears and a lot of ungodly conduct. And you don't want that. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to select someone that is a valid marriage partner. And that takes time of figuring things out and, and getting to know a person and things like that. And so in that process, you might decide, you know, this person is 
a, a great person in a lot of ways and maybe you see them as a strong Christian or maybe you don't see them as a strong Christian, but you may see things about them that you like and appreciate, but at the end of the day you might think, you know, I, I don't think that's who I want to spend the rest of my life with. I don't think that's who I want to be the other parent of our children. And so it comes to an end, or they may feel that way about you, and so it comes to an end. And if it started out as a friendship that centered on Jesus, even though there may be a painful period, you know, where that relationship came to an end, at some point you can come back to that where you started and kind of be more comfortable with that. So that's kind of what we're going to think about today. <clears throat> I want to define friendship. We use the word friendship very loosely. We talk about casual associates, you know, maybe somebody you go to school with or someone that you go to work with, and you might call them your friend. When if it wasn't for that one common thing like work or school that brings you together, then you would very likely not be friends. I had a lot of associates that I went to school together with that I called them my friends, but... I haven't seen them since, and I really don't miss them. <laughs> if it hadn't been for the fact that we happened to go to school together, we would have never become friends. So we use the word friend to define a relationship that really wasn't, you know, in the strictest sense of the word, wasn't really a strong friendship. Um, and that's more of a casual associate. And you're going to have a lot of people like that in life that you might think of as a friend, but it's really not, it's just circumstances that brings you together. The Bible says in Matthew 7 and 12, therefore whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We talked about this uh, earlier this week, the golden rule. It affects every area of our life. A, a random stranger that you meet on the street and that you'll never see again, you treat them in a way that's consistent with the golden rule. Somebody that you're courting or dating or uh, someone that you're married to, you treat them in accordance with the golden rule. And at all points in between those two relationship extremes. Well, <clears throat> that person you go to school with that you might label as a friend, but you're really not close friends, you treat them in accordance with the golden rule. And that means you will be friendly towards them. That means if they come and, and want to lean on your shoulder a little bit, so to speak, or talk to you, or depend on your companionship to get through the moment that whatever they're going through, then you'll try to be there for them. And, and you know, they may reciprocate that towards you in some way if you happen to be dealing with a quality individual. And so that might become a relationship where you have something that feels a lot like a friendship just because you've got two people that a job or something like that has brought them together and they're being nice to each other. But the moment that job ends or y'all no longer have a class together at school or whatever, the relationship is over and nobody really thinks anything about it. So when we talk about you know, courtship and dating, we're talking about a stronger association than this. So when you think of boyfriend and girlfriend, think of building a friendship that goes deeper. And that uh, enters more into the area of voluntary socialization. You don't have a choice sometimes in who they put next to you at work. You don't always have a choice in where they seat you at school. 
You know, there are times in life you, you don't get to choose whether or not you're around these people. Life just forces you to be together. And there's some teaching in the scriptures where we're warned that there's some of that that might be unpleasant that we can't avoid, that in order to avoid that, we would have to leave the world. That's one thing Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 5. So there'll be times that there'll be people that you'd rather not hang out with that work or school or other obligations forces you to be together on some level. And if you had a choice, you would diminish the amount of time you spend with that person. But moving beyond that, there are people you choose to socialize with, you choose to spend time with. And when you have that choice, but you choose to increase that relationship, that enters voluntary socialization, a, a new level of friendship. 1 Corinthians 15 and 33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. This is one of those passages that warns about choosing to voluntarily socialize with somebody who might have uh, uh, evil habits in their life, and the warning is that that will corrupt your habits. You know, it's interesting to me, we sometimes kind of argue with ourselves about this because somebody might have an electrifying personality and we're drawn to want to spend more time with them just because they have uh, some kind of a strange charm or something about being with them feels electrifying and we might recognize they have ungodly habits that are potentially spiritually destructive to us. We might sort of be concerned about that but then we kind of dismiss those concerns of well, you know, I'll just be careful and not pick up any of their bad habits. This passage doesn't say that might happen. This passage speaks of that as a certainty. It is just a matter of time before that corrupts your good habits. So you've got to really, really be careful and think about who you choose to spend that extra time with. There are some people you've got to be with them some because life puts you together. And you, you can only diminish that so much. But when you have a choice, you need to be more discerning and more selective. And if you'll do that at this stage of friendship, that will help filter out who you will or won't spend time courting. Because if somebody can't pass this filter, then they shouldn't pass the filter you have in place of, am I going to spend time with them, potentially considering them for for courtship and marriage, you see. So you need to have that filter in place where you're selective. There's uh, uh, something to think about on this. In this process of kind of enjoying that one person or those people that have these electrifying personalities and that charm and all like that, a lot of people, in order to justify spending bad time or time with bad people, They'll say, well, but Jesus, you know, he hung out with sinners and publicans and harlots and things like that. Well, he did. He spent time with sinners. There's no question about this. And he did that for the specific purpose of teaching those people that they must repent. You know, I heard a fellow use this one time as an excuse to go hang out in the bars. And one of the many things I said to him was, you're not going to those bars to preach repentance. And that's what Jesus was doing when he would sit down at a meal with people like that. Because I told that person, the moment you start preaching repentance in these different places you like to go with these people, the relationship will change. 
And it's likely to end. So let's, let's not deceive ourselves here. Another thing that's important to realize that if you think Jesus reaching out to sinners is an excuse for you to hang out with whoever you want, then you're confused about where you and I fit in the story. Because in that story, we're not Jesus, we're the sinners. And you need to really think about that. He was the son of God who came to seek and save the lost. And his quest to save lost sinners like you and like me is not an excuse for us to disregard what he teaches us about being selective in our friendship choices. So if you'll more carefully and in a godly way filter your just basic level friendships of voluntarily socializing, if you'll filter that better, that'll be an automatic filter that you put in place that helps protect you in the dating courtship question. Because here's the deal. If it's that person that has that electrifying personality, that person that's got a lot of pizzazz and a lot of charm that's just kind of fun to hang out with, even though they might be slowly spiritually compromising you, what happens if you're careless about this level of friendship and you let those kind of relationships develop and you spend a lot of time with that person and the next thing you know, you're falling into a kind of infatuation with them and you decide you want to spend time with them romantically and all of a sudden you're courting or dating somebody that you really shouldn't even be friends with. So have some protection in place before your emotions drag you that far into the relationship and trick you into thinking this is somewhere that you want or need to be. You know, I've told a few stories about people who got trapped in bad relationships and one of the, the keen things that was involved that let that happen was they reached a point where they were letting their emotions dictate their decisions. It wasn't that their eyes just automatically closed and their ears automatically closed when their boyfriend or girlfriend started saying or doing really bad things. They didn't just somehow lose their sense of sight and hearing when that was going on. When they witnessed those things, they disregarded that fruit in exchange for following their heart, and that's why they headed headlong into a train wreck and brought themselves a great deal of sorrow. So make those difficult choices earlier in the relationship where you're less emotionally invested and honor what the scriptures teach about being selective. There's a third level of friendship I want to think about in defining friendship, and that's a close friend. I remember years ago as a young adult hearing a guy say, if you'll think about it, you've only got four or five or six friends in your life. And that's all you've got. And if you're lucky, you've got that many. And that's the most you'll ever have. And I thought, well, how does that work? Because I was thinking about all these people that I chose to spend time with. Good people in the church and had great relationships with them and all like that. And so I didn't really understand what he was saying. What he was trying to say, and arguably could have worded a little bit better was you've only got five or six people that you're really super close soulmate friends with. He was talking about an even deeper level of friendship. The golden rule's got you treating everybody in a friendly way. Choosing to socialize with brothers and sisters in Christ has you developing deep and meaningful relationships with fellow Christians. But now we're talking about a friend that's somebody you would tell them anything. And they would tell you anything. 
even if it was unflattering flattering or painful. You know, it's just, you, you just spend a lot more time and you're just a lot more open with each other. And I think this brother in the Lord was trying to tell me that those kind of friendships are rare. And he went on from what he said to talk about if you're really blessed, you could call your parents that kind of friends. And if you're really blessed, you could call your spouse that kind of friend. Because there's some people that don't enjoy that kind of relationship with two godly parents. And there's some people that don't have a strong marriage and so they don't enjoy that kind of relationship with their spouse. And that's what he was really trying to get at is it's difficult and it takes a lot of work to build those kind of relationships with the closest people in your life. David and Jonathan had that kind of friendship. In 1 Samuel 18 and 1 it says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now there are many more passages we could read about the friendship that these two men enjoyed. And it's incredible when you study their friendship. They were robbed of a lot of time together because Jonathan's dad, Saul, just messed everything up. And that's another story for another day. These guys weren't buddies because they got to hang out all the time. They had a relationship because of a deep soul-level connection that they had. And I say soul-level because here we read that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That was just a different level of friendship. David had a lot of friends. He had a lot of guys he spent a lot of time with. You, you read about his time in exile and running from Saul and trying to avoid being killed. He had two, three, four hundred or more people that were going with him from place to place. He had family and things like that. He had a lot of close associates, but he didn't have very many Jonathans. This is a whole new, unique level of friendship. And I'm going to tell you something. If your courting is spiritually successful, this is the level of friendship you will obtain with your spouse. And if you don't, then something went wrong somewhere and you need to work on it. And it could be that the reason you don't have that level of friendship with that person is because the two of you don't share the same devotion to God. There's a lot of debate and discussion about whether or not it's proper for a Christian to marry a, a non-Christian. And I really don't want to try to answer that question today. I just want to put before you the idea, if you're going to have someone as your soulmate that you can tell them anything and you share every life goal together about how you raise your children and how you structure your home and everything about how you govern your life, just because they sit on a church pew two or three times a week does not make them a viable candidate. You want someone who has a close relationship with God and who honors God above all else in their life. And that's the kind of person you can build a home with because except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. That's what the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms. And if you're going to try to structure your home in a way that's spiritually successful, how can you do that with somebody that's not totally devoted to God? I, I don't get how that works. I guess the point I'm saying is I'm not talking about whether or not they should be a Christian. I'm saying sometimes that's not even enough. Because there are some Christians that unfortunately are very shallow about their faith. Don't you be one of them. Don't you be one of them. 
And don't think it's easy to build a strong, godly home with someone else that's one of those weak and uncommitted Christians. So, you need to be willing to be selective. Proverbs 24 and 1 says, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. What is it about man's broken and sinful state that desires to be with evil people? Why is it that that guy is the one that always seems to be the cool guy? I think it's because we're looking with crooked eyes. I really do. I, I want to talk about that. I, I don't really understand it. My wife and I have discussed this on end, and I've asked her to help me understand. But I, I see at least a, a good many young ladies, and certainly in the church, but even out in the world you see this, you see young ladies destroying themselves by wanting to go be with the bad boy. And there are some guys that, you know, the circle of nice guys that are relatively nice guys and have a sense of respect for the females in their life, and they can't win the attention of this girl over here because she's interested in the bad boy that acts like a jerk towards her, but she won't give up on it. And some of those mild-mannered nice guys out there in the world, they talk to each other and complain to each other and joke to each other about how, well, she says I'm a great guy, but she put me in the friend zone because she likes this other guy, and that other guy somehow is always the jerk. And I've asked my wife to help me understand why a girl would want the bad boy. What makes that so alluring? And maybe guys experience that on some level, too. I feel certain that they do. Well, this passage teaches us not to desire to be with evil people and not be envious, not to want that. What's going wrong when your heart craves that partner over there that's kind of forbidden fruit? What's going wrong? I want to say that it goes deeper than just who you choose to like. It goes down to a heart level that maybe you're lacking a level of commitment in despising evil. The Bible teaches us that it's wise to hate evil. And if you really hate sin the way a strong Christian should, then I think that naughty person, so to speak, that bad boy or that bad girl, will not seem quite so alluring. I think they'll become a little bit more of a turnoff. I hope you'll think about that. Maybe that'll save you a lot of heartache as you go through this process. Be selective. In Ephesians chapter 5, he governs our conduct in a way that will help us tremendously here. Verse 7 through 11. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So in a context, backing up earlier in the chapter where he's talking about different immoral things, he's saying don't be partakers with them, don't do these immoral things. And then he goes on and repeats that in verse 11, don't have association with these unfruitful works of darkness or these immoral things, don't do these things. Instead of doing them, expose them or reprove them. If we say what we should say about sin, that bad boy or that bad girl won't want our company for very long. I want to tell you something. 
<laughs> There's none so despised as the sober one in a room full of drunks. Now, I want you to really think about that. If somebody's bent on being intoxicated, they want to be around other people who want to be intoxicated, whether it's alcohol or drugs. And if there's somebody in that setting that stoutly declines and insists on remaining sober and refusing those things, that is water on the fire. They do not like that. Way back when I went to school, it wasn't any different. A lot of the people that I went to school with that were those casual friendships I talked about earlier, a lot of those guys did drugs. And when they were sneaking around at school to do that, they could not stand it that I wouldn't join them in that. And I remember thinking about that and feeling perplexed. Well, that doesn't make you any more or less high. <laughs> You know, whether or not I smoke that stuff or take that stuff or do that stuff, what does it hurt you for me to say no? Whatever the answer to that question is is another discussion for another day. The bottom line is that kept those relationships at arm's length. And that kept me to a certain degree on the outside of that. And that was a level of protection that a, a young and clueless David Earl really needed. I didn't really understand how all that was helping me when I said no to those things. And I would at other times talk to those fellows about what they were doing and warn them about that and encourage them to think about doing differently. I just did that because they were buddies and I thought that would help them and they didn't want to hear it. That was cold water on the fire. When you conduct yourself in your relationships the way Ephesians 5 says, that will keep those accidental relationships at arm's length. Because you'll always be, in their minds, you'll always be the stick in the mud. In the mind of God, you'll be the shining light. But in their minds, you'll be the stick in the mud because you're the one that's always killing the party. Well, some parties need to die. And if it's your gentle reproach, in your gentle opposition to what they're doing that kills that party and keeps you distant from it, then you're doing yourself a favor. Because I'm going to tell you something. You don't want to marry that. I don't care how cute it is, he or she. I don't care how charming they might seem. That's not who you want raising your children. That's not who you want to depend on to make your home stable and godly. For the love of all that's decent, use your heads. For something besides a hat rack. Okay? And think these things through. Think like a child of God. And when you see these things going on in relationships then offer that reproof of those things, and that will help shield you. Do you want to do that in a way that's sanctimonious and self-righteous? No, because the golden rule won't let you act that way. The golden rule says you treat them the way you'd want to be treated. So you think about that as you interact in these things. Consider the warnings that Scripture give us about bad relationships and what bad relationships will do. God warned Israel 
about the enemy nations that would be around them and them developing relationships with those people. In Numbers 33 and verse 55, he said, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. He described those people who said, you've got to distance yourself from them. If you don't, they're going to be an irritant in your eye. Who can stand the feeling of having something in your eye? You ever get that feeling you've got an eyelash in your eye? And you go to the mirror and you're digging and poking and taking your eyeball out and scratching it and doing everything, you, anything you can think of to get rid of that feeling. That's a horrible feeling. God says that's what it's like when you leave those relationships there and you don't put those buffers in place to protect you. In the book of Proverbs 13 and verse 20, he said, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools has a slight chance of being destroyed. That's the way I want to read it if I'm using my emotions to make my decisions and I don't want to give up that friendship or put that friendship at risk. But if I'm thinking the way God wants me to think and I'm setting my emotions aside for the moment and thinking instead of emoting, then I'm going to read that correctly and, say, and it says a companion of fools will be destroyed. I need to be careful about the time that I spend with those people. Sometimes school forces you together or work forces you together or you're in a community service organization together or whatever and you're just there and like Paul said to the Corinthians, you, you can't leave the world. You, you can't go to another planet, okay, to get away from it because if you did, you'd bring it with you in your heart, okay? So there's no escaping it. We've just got to be mindful as we regulate that and as we watch that. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 24 and 25, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go, lest, lest, hey, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. You know what a snare is? Some of you might be thinking of a snare drum. That's not what we're talking about. The snare here is a trap. When you have these unwise relationships, he said you're setting a trap for yourself. So don't make friendships with that person. Don't make friendships with that person. And the specific example at hand is you'll learn to pitch fits like they do. You'll learn to have uncontrolled anger like they do. Look, anger is hard enough to control. My anger doesn't need any help from the world. So I'm not going to stick my nose in the air and act better than that other person. I'm not going to be condescending or hateful toward them. I'm going to treat them with humility and follow the golden rule and be cordial and loving towards them, but I'm going to safeguard okay, my relationships, realizing what bad relationships will do. If that's going to happen in a friendship, what's going to happen when you marry that person? There's a couple of main characteristics you need to watch for and you need to build into your relationships. And one of those is to act in a way that is loving. 
And look at the consistency of love in a godly friendship. Proverbs 17 and 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. The brother born for adversity, that's our natural inclination to sibling rivalry. Um, Any of you who have siblings, you understand. It's kind of easy to fall into sibling rivalry and have a lot of conflict with your brother or your sister. My older brother is one of my best friends, and he's been that way all of our lives together. We didn't quarrel a lot growing up, and the longer I live and the more I watch, the more I realize how utterly unusual that is. It's not because he and I were these great you know, diplomats that were able to constantly broker peace treaties. We just happened to get along that well. Uh, you know, If you want to call it luck or a blessing, you label it however you want. We just always got along. That's unusual. That's abnormal. The norm is for there to be some level of conflict. And what he's teaching us here in a contrast with that is in our friendship, we've got to go the other way. Instead of at all times having that natural conflict, we've got to at all times love with a consistent love. That means loving when you don't feel like it. And so if you want to have a... a, a godly, strong friendship with the person you're courting or the person you're dating, then build those relationships with the people you choose to spend time with. And when out of those grow relationships that become really close soulmate level relationships, then you practice that consistent love as those friendships deepen down that scale of friendship. And then from that pool, as you identify someone that you might court, or pursue a romantic relationship with, then you continue to feed into that to exercise consistent love. Because nobody is lovable all the time. We've talked some about the idea of Christ teaching us to love even those who are not easy to love. And there are some people that most of the time they're easy to love because of their conduct. But everybody at certain times has moments where they're not easy to love. I remember so well early in the relationship with my wife looking at her thinking, I really thought this. I don't know if it's possible for me to be mad at her. (laughs) Wrong answer. I found a way. Okay, she helped me figure that out. Because as much as I adore her, as much as I fall into a helpless trance when I pull out my cell phone and wake up the screen and see her picture, I still do. There are moments she's not easy to love. And there are moments that I'm not easy to love. And I'm committed to being better for her to make her choice easier, and there's still days that it's not easy. So you've got to learn to practice in your friendship loving when people aren't easy to love so that when you reach a romantic relationship and you're courting and you're dating, you've already built that ethic into the way you handle relationships. And you can exercise that and practice that kind of consistent love in that relationship. And if you're blessed for that to become marriage, then you exercise that level of unfailing love in that relationship because it's a choice. It's not going with your feelings. 
<coughs> because if you go with your feelings before long, you're going to start swinging, <laughs> you know, and that's not right. So you don't go with your feelings. You go with what God says is right. Love consistently. Another of these two main characteristics is loyalty, which arguably is a part of love. But I put it here because there's a scripture that so powerfully speaks the importance of loyalty. Proverbs 25 and 19 says, Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. You ever, I was with a fellow here a while back, and he had a tooth that was going bad on him, and it, it ruined every part of his body. He was hurting all over because of this much real estate on the side of his face. A bad tooth is miserable, and anybody that's had that knows that. A foot out of joint when I was young, as clumsy as I am today, I was even more clumsy then, and I used to twist my ankles a lot, really bad. And boy, that is painful. That's, that's terrible. And sometimes the joints down there in my ankles, they still hurt because of injuries from 40 years ago or longer. Yeah, it's just, it's a terrible thing. And that's two things the Lord used here to illustrate how painful it is when you've placed your confidence in someone and they turned out to be untrue. Well, I want to encourage you to do all you can to look for reliability in the people you choose to spend time with. But I hope you're also thinking of being that person. Be that reliable person. So that if somebody lets somebody down, it's not going to be you. If somebody doesn't show up to the plate, it's not going to be you. If somebody doesn't fulfill their role and their obligation, it's not going to be you. And as you recognize in other people that level of unreliability and untrustworthiness, you guard those relationships carefully and don't let it grow too deep. Because if you go in seeing that somebody will let you down and then they let you down, I'm sorry, but you got what you asked for. You may not have meant to ask for it, but you did when you were careless in your choice of friends, which becomes your choice of courting companions. So that loyalty and that love then are two very foundational, very important characteristics to look for. That concludes our fourth study in the series on Ruth. I hope you're thinking soberly about these things. I hope you're thinking about that love and that loyalty as you consider God's reach towards you. He's reached out to you in perfect love, in unfailing loyalty. If anything about your relationship with God fails, it won't be because he failed. What better friend could you have than your creator? What better relationship could you have than his son? If you've never become a Christian and never entered that friendship with the Lord, I want to invite you to do that now by being baptized into Christ. Or if you are a Christian and you've been unreliable in that friendship and you want to set that right, we'd like to offer you the prayers of the church to aid you in that. If we can help in either way, please come, have a seat while we stand and sing.